0: Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy. Discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else
1: that comes up. Alright!
0: Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey Randy, how's it going?
1: Hey Jake, I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm
0: doing wonderful. I've been having such a good time watching the Frisbeer live stream and man, I've seen you on there. It looks like so much fun. How is it?
1: Frisbeer is amazing, and I'm uh, having a great time seeing an amazing play, uh, having a great time playing with the Roveretto guys, Andrea Festi and uh, Mattia Columbari. I feel like our co-op routine went really great. Did you see that by any chance? Oh,
0: my God. Your co-op routine was amazing. I saw you do your double spinning osis, which is one of your signature moves, and you just hit it perfectly. Jake. <laughs> Randy. <laughs>
1: let's stop this charade you know that i'm not there yet and we're recording this beforehand so that being said i bet you all those things that we were saying probably do happen and i can't wait to be there to experience it yeah and i can't wait to watch it
0: on the live stream it's going to be so much fun i kind of wish i would be there but live stream is the next best thing
1: you will be missed for sure
0: yes so what do we have on the docket for this episode
1: well, today we are going to continue our conversation with John Kirkland, and he's actually going to tell us a little bit more about his partnership and his journey with Donnie Rhodes. So enjoy. So, well, now we're we're still reminiscing and that's kind of part of what we're here to do. So you mentioned Donnie Rhodes and uh, would love to hear you talk about that journey with Donnie Rhodes in the Rose Bowl, and whose decision was it to wear the white unitards?
2: <laughs> yeah, Donnie was one of those, in the same way that I say that Victor was the only guy to ever blew my mind, Donnie was an example of the shortest time from zero to hero that will ever be in any sport. I mean, he just went from this kind of a ragamuffin- street kid who had nothing at least that i was perspicuous enough to realize to being flat out the best guy on the planet he just went in from january to june in 1980 he went from nothing to everything it was unbelievable i mean he took the sport in ways i mean he was a huge huge influence on the direction that the sport took i mean even though he was only doing clock, he was doing moves that were mind blowing and combinations and ballet like kicks, unexpected difficulty. And, you know, I'm I'm running out of terms to describe the guy. It's hard to to realize just how good he was. I'm going to put a little ad here is that he was
1: doing all this amazing stuff with extreme Calmness. You never had any uh, anxiety of like, oh, is he going to get there? Oh, he's not. I mean, he just was able to make you relax and watch him do this incredible stuff that nobody was coming close to.
2: No, I mean, he won everything. And uh, I was playing a lot with Greg Riley in those days. And I remember Greg and I did a lot of stuff that was unusual. I remember a Sarasota tournament and Greg and I just went and just killed it. And then Donnie and Jeff Fellerbaum came on, and there was just no question. Man, it's like men and boys. I mean, Jeff would do his stuff, and he was a very creative guy and did an osis as as well as anybody and was a really good player. But Donnie was just – you had the feeling like you were just in on this phenomenal kind of nonlinear moment where this guy was just tapping into this energy that nobody else seemed to understand. I was really happy to play with him. He came and stayed with me. I lived at the time I lived in a dome up above uh, Santa Barbara on five acres. It was a really cool. It was the first dome built in California for uh, residential use and, and my wife G and I had bought it in 79 and we added to it and did all this stuff too. It. it was a really cool place to live. Donnie came and he stayed with me and just played and played and came up with a really good routine. I believe that the the semis routine, is online on YouTube. It went really well. I, you know, I was dropless. I did I did all my stuff, my little silly stuff against the scan and all that kind of stuff. But I was just in subservience to the talent that was Donnie. It was his idea, I believe, to wear the unitard. It certainly wasn't something that I would have thought of. <laughs> but, uh, well, everyone was wearing leg warmers. And I'd never taken a dance class in my entire life, and I'm wearing them. It's sort of like, I'm wearing them more to be cool and to look like everybody else than it keeping my legs warm. Because I'm in Santa Barbara, my legs were already warm. As a matter of fact, the damn things were hot, but you had to wear them to be cool.
1: So how did you guys approach choreography and music? Because it was a really fully planned out from beginning to end, and who led? And just kind of talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, my thing was always choreography. I mean. With the Globetrotters, like I said, Stork and I were arguing about choreography from 1974 onward. And I was always a fan of choreography because I realized from just other sports, such as, uh, you know, the ice dancing in the Olympics, that sort of thing, figure skating. There's just too many things to remember. So you've got to you've got to choreograph. You've got to build in. It's sort of like we were talking about before the the confluence of ideas of your mind and your heart. You want you don't want it to be just all winging it because you always forget the stuff that you should have done, but you don't want to be lost in the choreography either. So marrying the ideas and the feel in in life also is very important. This is a long, drawn-out way of saying that I was in charge of the choreography and tried to come up with stuff that would take advantage of, of my strengths and Donnie's. And uh, things like throwing upside down with lots of spin. And and C- Cray and I had actually done a lot of choreography together. And Cray is another brilliant choreographer. As a matter of fact, really, there have only been a few, in my mind, great freestylers. There was Victor, and there was Cray, and there was Joey and Donnie. And, you know, and then I was gone because I went off to do other things. And there's a bunch of, you know, obviously... Jim Schmall and Randy Sylvie and Jake and they're all these guys and James Wiseman just blows my mind um, continually. And, but there are all these guys now. The, the thing is off, it's, it's off and running but at the time of Donnie and myself, I was pretty much doing the choreography and he could just do anything. So I'd just come up with an idea and he could do it, no matter what it was. And so... Um, Once again, it was one of those Rose Bowl moments, you know. Uh, We had a dropless routine, or at least we had two or three drops in the semis. It's just him going for ridiculous stuff. The wind could interfere. The Rose Bowl is another one of those that we should have won, I thought. But once again, it's just uh, that's focusing on, you know, how you do place wise and all. And we ran into a buzzsaw. I mean, we were good, we didn't hit quite like we hit in the semis. Uh, it was kind of breezy and all, but the, the Rose Bowl had very strange downdrafts and stuff. But we just ran into the Coloradical, the Coloradicals doing that weave and all, and they had a lot more drops, but they were so enthusiastic, and they were having such a good time. And even if we had hit like we did in the semis and had gone dropless, we might have lost to them because it was not done, how would I say it? In those days, it was more a matter of energy than it was, like, I always thought that if you really want to judge, I mean, so what's important? What is the important thing? Is it, is the important thing the experience of being there? It doesn't matter who wins. Let's say you get $10 million for first and $5 million for second. Now it's important. How should you do that? How should you do diving? How should you do, uh, ice dancing, sports, figure skating. I mean, it seems to me the way to do it would be to film it all from a bunch of different angles and then watch it over and over and over. And everybody talks about, you see this and you see that and slow it down. If you really want to get down to the nitty gritty of who's doing the hardest stuff and has the best flow, there's probably some way of judging. And if we had done that, then, then Donnie and I would have won. But that's not how we do it as humans. And that's not how they do diving. And that's not how they do figure skating it's always an, a, a real-time thing and it's humans being caught up in being humans
1: so the judging system being used in the Rose Bowl at that time I was it the ranking system or was it the FPA system or what what system was being used then
2: I don't know to be to, to give this the short answer I don't remember the system but it certainly didn't penalize you for drops because they had a lot more drops than we did I have a question to Threesomes and pairs compete against each other now.
0: Not anymore. That's right. Two well, see, divisions. that's
2: another. That's another thing. It's hard for pairs to beat a threesome. Anyhow, it was mixing apples and oranges. It was a bunch of things. We had set the standard so high on that the Saturday night before in the in the semis. We had such a good routine. It's just a weird thing. I think that I'm not saying that that I should have won or anything. I'm saying that. That was the year of Donnie, and he should have won uh, because he changed freestyle. But, you know, it was also the year of the Radicals, and they sort of changed freestyle in very interesting ways, too. So apart from that winning and losing thing, it was a, a seminal time in our sport freestyle-wise, and that's more important than, you know, winning and losing.
0: So, John, you had just alluded to um, leaving the sport, so I wanted to ask you, how come you stopped freestyling?
2: You know, it's it's funny because... I was always a freestyler from the early days. But, you know, its I come from the time when everyone did everything, uh, as do you, Randy. Didn't you throw 195 meters in Colorado when that windstorm came up one year? Well, there was no windstorm.
1: It was all pure form and excellence. And I <laughs> believe I had like this, maybe the second longest throw in history at one point. So.
2: You did. 195 meters. I heard all about it. Yeah, in the old days, everyone did everything. It was Frisbee. There was no freestyle. There was no field events. Everyone did everything. The first people to not do everything were Joey and Richie. I mean, literally, uh, in 76 at the Irvine tournament, was it? No, it was 77. I take that back. It was 77 Irvine. Uh, Westerfield and I were playing together, and we were playing with a clear 50-mold. Uh, which is a very rare disc, Joey and Richie showed up from New York and they're playing with a lid. And that's the last time I ever played freestyle with a 50 mold. The lid became the disc because of Joey and Richie. And they also only did freestyle. Everyone else in the tournament played golf, distance, MTA, freestyle. Everyone did everything. Joey and Richie were the first specialists
0: so, what was the attitude towards them yeah. at that time?
2: Well, the attitude was these New York kids are doing amazing stuff. It's too bad they're not doing the other stuff, but they're obviously not—they're not power guys. They're more dance kind of oriented rather than power feel events, and they've just never spent any time anywhere except in Washington Square in New York. And there's not enough room there to do anything except freestyle, anyhow. So it made a certain amount of sense. Plus, they were so good at it that it it made us think differently. It's It sort of set it up as, well, what do I want to do more? Do I, it, There simply isn't enough time, as you guys know, to do all the events. And so by the time 1980 came around, I had pretty much just stopped doing all the events except for freestyle. All we did, G and I did, was freestyle. We got up, we lived, ever since she and I got married, we'd get up in Del Mar and go down to the beach and just play freestyle. And so for years, freestyle became more and more important. So that by the time Donnie and I were playing together in 80, I didn't, in the Rose Bowl, I didn't play any other event except freestyle. That's the only thing I wanted, I cared about. I got 19th in the overall or something I might have done. I mean, I didn't throw distance. I, you know, I had given up on all the other parts. Uh, and then when Donnie and I didn't win, then I, the next year I decided, hey, I'm going to win the overall. And I got back into it. And did well. Scott and I had a great battle that year. I won Santa Cruz, but he won, won the Rose Bowl. He got second at Santa Cruz at the overall, and I got second at the Rose Bowl.
1: Scott uh, Zimmerman, that is.
2: Yeah, yeah. Scott was an amazing overall. You'd have to say the best overall player ever, at least in terms of the of uh, the Huambo competitions, because he won a bunch of those overalls, and he could do all the events. He was a truly great overall player. Actually, his weakest event was freestyle, but he was still a pretty good freestyler compared to, you know, a lot of folks. Those were the, the days of the overall. Now there is, as, as we were saying, now there's no time to do all the events. It's, it's a rare person who can do all the events. I'm trying to think of who the last really good overall player was that could do all the events. Um, I guess Christian Sandstrom, because he was a pretty good freestyler. Or Sune, who was also a really good freestyler. But I'm trying to think of now, uh, the guys who win the overalls are not freestylers. Uh, you know, Conrad, my son Cody, um, Jack Cooksey, those kind of folks. They're not freestylers.
1: And it's just not the focus anymore. It's all way specialized. I mean, you got the oh, PDGA, the FPA. There's not really an overall tournament format like there was back in that day where NAS that was the lifeblood. I mean, you had to qualify in multiple events to get there. So I want to continue on, like, so what was that momentum that made you stop playing?
2: You know, when I look back on it, it was sort of silly. I was having a very good year. I was throwing hard. I was doing well. I'd won a bunch of stuff, set the world record in MTA at that Santa Cruz tournament. Uh, I was playing well. I got second to Scott and I was sort of down on myself because I had that tournament. And I just had a, a particularly bad Thursday. I didn't do very well in golf and didn't do very well in TRC on Thursday at that tournament. But I did, I had a good time playing with the Vlasquez brothers and the Rose Bowl. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> Wearing the unitards again. And uh, I, I look at those pictures of myself being barefoot playing with those guys. That was, we had a great time. But you know what it was is, once again, it's one of those unstable e- equilibria things where I was sort of, angry at myself for not winning the Rose Bowl, and I'd said that I was going to. It was just an ego thing. I was saying that I was going to beat Scott, and he beat me, and I'd, I'd really tried hard and practiced hard for that tournament. And my brother-in-law, Chris Taylor, had said, uh, okay, if that's about enough of this Frisbee stuff. Let's go do something really cool. Let's play golf. And I said, ho, oh, golf. So I just decided to get good at ball golf. And so I was off and running, doing the ball golf thing, and if I had it to do over again, I would have continued frisbee. You know, I would have gone to a couple of tournaments in the summer and then done the Rose Bowl and kept my finger in the pie because I really loved it. But I, you know, I have a history of sort of getting really good at things and then moving on in my life. I got I got really good at a few things in my life. I was a, a, a champion swimmer and was top six in the nation in swimming and all that, and then I just sort of went on and I got really good at shooting pool and I and then I moved on to frisbee and I got really good at frisbee and I moved on to golf then I didn't get really good at golf (laughs) that was the end of that I mean I was a scratch golfer I could shoot in the 60s but man I went from being a whale in a pond to a minnow in the ocean I mean those golfers guys are good I mean really good and you can't start something at age 35 you know, it's funny, my dad was a friend of Arnold Palmer. They played a lot of golf together, and he introduced me to Arnold about a year in, and I was a three handicap after a year. And he introduces me to Arnold and he says, he thinks he's gonna be a pro. And Arnold looks at me and he says, You'll learn, kid, you'll learn. And I did learn. I didn't have a chance against those guys. You to be a good golfer. You had to start playing when you, you had to start playing golf when I started playing Frisbee. When you're 10, freestylers, people that would listen to this podcast, it's hard to have an appreciation for just how good an athlete a a pro ball golfer is.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to hear John talk about how he was drawn away from freestyle by ball golf, by another passion, basically. I find it interesting because my experience has been a little bit different in that freestyle, for me... I see it as like constant growth. There's always something new. There's always something that's still attracting me to it. And so I've never reached that place where I feel like I can't grow anymore and I need to shift my focus to grow in something else. But I've seen so many other people where they they get really good at freestyle and then maybe something else comes along. Maybe it's family or maybe with John like it was golf, but it's something else like there's this human desire, this drive to, to always strive and grow and become more. I can see how that happens, but it's interesting how it's different for different people.
1: I can actually relate because Frisbee and freestyle in specific was really the passion of my life. And then all of a sudden, I got into something totally new, and that was theater. And that totally swept me off my feet, and Frisbee just kind of became secondary because I'd just been taken by the whole aspect of theater and what it all entailed in the creative process. And actually, there was a lot of similarities in freestyle frisbee and theater and so that probably was part of that draw that drew me into theater um on the other side of that it's also what drew me back to frisbee and freestyle was that creative draw so it's interesting about passions and is there multiple passions or are you just singular passion or i have to think that you can have multiple passions going on but maybe there's that Desire to get really good at something, you become singularly focused on just that one thing, so that you can do the deep dive.
0: Yeah, yeah. I saw a TED talk, I guess, that was talking about um, trying to remember exactly what it was. It was something about the number of hours of practice that it takes to become eighty percent good. It's like ten thousand hours or something like that. But then to get ninety percent good takes a whole lot more hours, and to get a hundred percent good takes exponentially more hours. And so it's, I guess maybe a lot of people like to get to that 80% point and then
1: they feel satisfied. I don't know. I don't really know what
0: it is because I'm sure that there's plenty of other people who don't even need to get good; they're just happy doing what they're doing.
1: I think there's certain people that have a drive for certain things, and if that thing triggers you, you you just you, you just go. You don't have a choice. I heard the ten thousand hour thing, but I've never heard that. You know, you get to eighty percent, and then to get to ninety percent, you almost got to double the efforts. It's kind of like the Richter scale of earthquakes, and it's like, oh, if you want to get to that elite, elite, elite status, you gotta double down your efforts. Yeah, never heard that.
0: Yeah, more effort for, I guess in some ways, less reward. But it's funny, It's actually kind of mirrors the diff scale in the judging system how it's a lot easier to go from a 3 to a 4 than it is to go from a 7 to an 8. <laughs> it's yeah. not
1: linear. Right, right. At least it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be linear, yeah. So
0: anyhow, with that, uh, Frisbeer live streams going on right now. So I hope everyone out there is watching and enjoying. And uh, if you're hearing this podcast and it was released Within the week, then you can tune in and watch Holy Jam the weekend after Frisbeer. Holy Jam will be live-streamed as well. So thanks to Mystic for putting in all the effort to make it happen.
1: On that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and
2: Randy. To contact us,
0: or for more info... Check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, shooting the frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee.
1: Oh,
0: yeah!